everybody, and welcome back for another Digital Book Club with Mangum Reads. We are continuing our run-through of mysteries with now our third and sadly last Agatha Christie story, An Appointment with Death, which I think my co-host will agree is an aggressively good title. It draws the eye. <laughs> Before we get into the meat of the story, though, we like to give our guests, our fellow enjoyers of the Digital Book Club, an opportunity to have a nice drink pairing. Sarah, do you have a recommendation for us this week? Well, I have a drink that I'm drinking, Spencer, <laughs> whether it's a recommendation <laughs> or not uh, remains to be seen. However, this is the first story, the first and I suppose now, as you have laid out, last uh, story that we are reading that is our little Belgian friend, um, Hercule Poirot. <laughs> and I did a little digging and um, found out that apparently his... Drink of choice is a small glass of creme de menthe. So interesting. That's that's a choice. It's a choice you can make. So I have, um, you know, luckily I did in fact buy creme de menthe for some other god awful cocktail Mm -hmm. that I made at some point. I don't remember what it was, but I have a lot of it left. So I did uh, pour myself a very small glass of creme de menthe. I drank it. I checked to make sure that it was not in fact mouthwash. And then um, <laughs> promptly poured myself a cup of coffee to get rid of that taste. But if, if, I will for... say that it did um, it did stimulate the little gray cells. So I am ready to go for this podcast. If I was gonna we... say like I feel like a more on brand cocktail would be creme de violette or creme de violette. Yes, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but like that seems like a little bit more like. Poirot's style. That might be true, and I would be that would that would certainly be fine. Although we we have in previous pods, I have also Talked lamented about... the difficulty of finding creme de violette right. in North Carolina. So um, this could be purchased or something, you know, uh, in a different state and brought back to you as as I not infrequently travel outside of uh, the the sad state of uh, North Carolina for purchasing such things. I, you know, at um, this point, I would tell you that I, um, that my liquor shelf is sagging enough without another bottle of something <laughs> that I will drink one glass of. But I am now, Creme de Violette has, has come up enough times that I am interested in it. Um, and I would like to be able to make, I believe it's really in an aviation, isn't it? Um, but nevertheless, the Creme de Menthe has been drunk. Well, mm-hmm. Sarah, as always, we appreciate your suffering for our amusement. Yes. And if we needed further proof that Hercule Poirot is an odd little dude, <laughs> we have it now. He is odd but charming, um, which this drink is one of those things. So, <laughs> Well, an, an Appointment with Death is one of Agatha Christie's more famous works of detective fiction starring her illustrious Belgian detective. It was originally published back in 1938 and has been adapted to both the screen and the stage in numerous ways, in which we will discuss some of the major changes that she made when she did so later. It is certainly famous, but I think of the three stories that we have done here, it is probably the most contentious, and that some people adore it, and other people just outright write it off. Yes. Sarah, mm-hmm. you were doing a little bit of background research into some kind of conflicting consumer reviews on that point. Did you notice any themes? Yeah, I did. I'm not going to read um, specific one-star reviews because there were not like entertaining ones, but there were a couple of themes that I noticed. Um, one of which is that uh, this seems like two, two, th- maybe three different stories just sort of glommed together in, in post-production for Ms. Mm. Christie. Um, the other is that was the, 
perhaps fair assessment that half of this story is really just a travelogue for the Holy Land, and that if if said mm-hmm. reviewer had wanted to read a travelogue for the Holy Land and learn facts about Petra, they would have picked up something different than an Agatha Christie story. But here we are. Yeah, if, if you needed proof that Agatha Christie spent a hell of a lot of time traveling around the Middle East and the Holy Land and the British Mandate of Palestine during the 1930s, here you go. Here it is. She, it, this, the first half of the story is quite in fairness, it's as if she's writing, making a story of her own notes of maybe her first trip to Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. Well, listen, if you have the notes, you might as well use them, I suppose. <laughs> yes. Um, yep. The third kind of theme of complaints for this story that I was reading is that the ending doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it, it was a little... Uh, unfair mystery. It was, yeah, a little abrupt, which I think we can a get lot. to kind of what... <laughs> yeah, what, we'll get there. Whether, we'll get there. The, yeah, um, the extent to which those might be fair complaints. But um, those are the kind of the through lines that I'm seeing in the... To be fair, there weren't really any one-star reviews. These were the three through lines of the three-star reviews that seems to be about say, as, th- as low as Agatha Christie generally goes. There mm-hmm. are some one-star reviews on, on Goodreads, and they're the same. Like... I mean, there's some DNFs and, and like, I got bored and it's like, all right, well, it's like, it's pretty short. If you got bored and didn't finish it, like... This was never for you in the first place. Um, Like, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So before we get into the book, um, Spencer, I I don't know where you fall on this. I have a feeling that Sarah and I fall in the same place. Do you... (laughs) Happy to be the odd man out, PJ. Go on. Imagine David Suchet when you think about Mm. Poirot. Or, or do you have another image in your head? Uh, growing up with him being that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, hell, when I was double-checking how to pronounce the damn name, because it is a weird mix of Belgian and French that goes into that <laughs> pronunciation, I relied on him and his pronunciation to make it work. Um, I just, it's impressive how well an actor... I mean, obviously, you cast an actor that hopefully looks a little bit like the description, mm-hmm. um, which doesn't always happen. Uh, case in point, um, a friend of mine has been on my case to read the uh, Jack Reacher books, um, and casting Tom Cruise as the main character who's supposed to be like 6'3 and an imposing <laughs> bear of a man or something like that just doesn't quite work. Whereas David, like, if you were to put Poirot into human form with his twirly mustaches, David Suchet does a very good job of that. Agreed. To, expl- to explain to our listeners that aren't familiar, David Suchet has played Poirot for, I think, like 15 years or something with Agatha Christie's Poirot uh-huh. on the BBC. So it might be more than that, but yeah. It was a long damn yes. time. <laughs> uh, actually, look it up. 25 years. Oh, boy. Okay. Man- yeah. Man- man's had a long run. <laughs> Um, Um, And he, for me, has, like, interestingly, you know, I I don't know. I mean, he is absolutely, to your point, BJ, who I see uh, when I read Poirot. Um, Mm -hmm. Much more so than any of the, like, myriad of excellent women who have played Miss Marple are Miss Marple. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, this is the guy. Right. And interestingly, like, there are other characters, and, and I think this would be an interesting thing to go through some time. But like James Bond, like there are people that have iconic James Bonds mm-hmm. there, you know, um, 
we talked about it a little bit in our our uh, redheaded stepchild podcast, pottering around about like <laughs> characters from the movies that really supplant any image that you have in the books. Um, you know, things yeah. like that, where there are character actors that play uh, iconic roles and then sort of supplant uh, whoever's in the book. Um, and I think that there are times that that happens more than others. It's it's fun too because then he has the physicality down. His natural voice, who we see in other roles, is a deep chest voice that doesn't work as much for the mm. role. So he's had to train himself to do the voice different. So it's fun to watch. If you ever watch on YouTube some of his voice exercises to get him in the much higher voice and the very much the head and the throat. Interesting. He has to. He's had to build. He's had to build that into the persona to make it work because of how different his voice would naturally be from is described in the text. Mm-hmm. But the text itself, I would I would agree with some of the reviews mm-hmm. that this is. At least certainly of the three we've done, the messiest. Yeah. It it it, mm-hmm. it it does a lot of things, and it's clear that Agatha Christie is just having a hell of a lot of fun putting them all together with not necessarily a care whether they work or not. I would say, though, that in terms of our ultimate quest to find the coziest mystery, this may be the coziest of the three and has mm-hmm. a lot of the hallmarks of a cozy mystery. Mm-hmm. Probably more... So, I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, but for me, of anything that we've read as part of this never-ending quest to find the cozy mystery... It's the one that gets the closest to what I think is the right is the right definition. Yeah, yeah, I would I would agree with that. Okay. Um, well, we we've, we've addressed a drink for everybody to enjoy. We've addressed what the broader internet thought thinks. Let's go into what we think. Um, the play itself, uh, story, the play, <laughs> the, the, the novel novella. It's like 250 pages. Uh, is set very determinedly in the British Mandate of Palestine in the late 30s. This is the setting. And you will have a lot of reminders that this is the setting. Because this story could not happen any other place. The amount of descriptions, the amount of places, the amount of other side characters that are all kind of coloring this world. It's clear mm-hmm. in my mind that Agatha Christie either has a lot of affection or a lot of disdain, but certainly a lot of memories associated with this part of the world. Yeah. And wants to give you a bit of an insight into them. So do you think that there was a little bit of an author stand-in? Uh, of any of the characters. Because, I mean, I think we have that every so often uh, with various authors sort of having their a character that sort of resembles them. Um, and I guess, like, I, I, I don't know Agatha Christie herself enough to, like, really uh, figure that out. But, like, I had this sort of gut feeling that uh, Sarah King might have been, like, a little bit of her stand-in. Possible? I said, as you noted, I don't know enough about her early background to really say. I mean, she first started, she first started touring the Middle East with her husband, who was on a lot of archaeological digs Mm -hmm. um, during that kind of period throughout the 30s. So certainly, it's certainly possible that she's that she's putting a bit of herself into the role, particularly given what for me was a bit of a surprise for what a key role um, Sarah King ultimately plays in the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, like it just it was a character she didn't seem to have disdain for. Um. <laughs> um, well, Sarah, as you kind of referenced, first half of the story doesn't necessarily set up that there's going to be a mystery other than Hercule Poirot is in it, and there is talk of a murder in the first sentence of page one. Right. Well, but I think we also, as a group, kind of decided that Poirot being in the first scene, basically, of the book where a murder is discussed seems like the second half of the story was written and it needed to be tied to the first half. And so <laughs> this is how we're going to do it. Um, 
Yeah, and I, I, I have, I have wonder... questions about, like, even the necessity of the first scene, which we can maybe get to a little bit yeah. later. But I do think that, like, even once we get past the first scene into the more travel log e bit, I mean, I do think that even well before the murder, there is a mystery, which is what the hell is going on with this family? Like, that's mystery right, right. enough. The, yeah, the, the nature of the mystery kind of changes over the story. Yes. The initial mystery is is the fascination that both Sarah King and Dr. Gerard have towards what is this weird appearance from an academic treatise suddenly by myths going on? Yes. How is this family functioning? What is the dynamic that's happening around this malevolent, uh, malevolent matriarchal figure that runs this little den of people? So we but, have this, this first scene that does have Hercule Poirot in it. Um, listening through an open window, which he is about to close because he doesn't believe in open windows, which is... Weird little dude. <laughs> Just made my heart happy. Uh, and Fresh air is terrible for you. I must close the window. Um, it, this story is, almost of the three we've read, the most determinedly of its period in terms of some of the characters' philosophies, the characters' <laughs> beliefs, how they act... Little political motivations that they offer every now and then. This is of an era. Yes. Uh, <laughs> as is Poirot. But as you say, he's about to close the window because, dear God, open air, bad. Um, when coming in through the night, he hears from a neighboring room the initial lines of the story essentially saying that someone needs to be murdered. Yes. Uh, you, you do see, don't you, that she's got to be killed. Which... He immediately tries to write off in his head of, I'm on vacation, <laughs> I'm thinking about work again. Clearly there's some other explanation for this and goes back to bed. Yes. Maybe they're practicing for a play or... Yeah. Writing or, a story. Or something or, that yeah. obviously could reasonably be happening in the room next door to me when I'm closing the windows for the night. Sure. Yes. Maybe people do that in, the pal in Palestine all the time. I don't know. I just got here. <laughs> or actually, maybe in Cairo at this point, actually. Whatever. Um, yeah. But we cut to the room to see, no, 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 these are two people that are having a very earnest conversation over their mother, not mother, needs to die mm -hmm. for reasons of their own constant abuse, but also very pointedly for the both, for reasons of protecting their younger stepsister, yes. as we ultimately find mm -hmm. she is, that we have not yet met the Mrs. Boynton, but we don't hear anything good about her to start. And... Meeting her in the next few scenes, how would you guys describe what she is? Because her psychology and her motivations become intensely debated by characters throughout this story. Yeah. Um, I have a feeling that, that we're going to meet another character that, that you're going to feel similarly about um, in the not-too-distant future in one of our other books. Um, but, yeah, she just seems to be malevolent for malevolent sake you know just seems to enjoy torturing the people around her and, and basically controlling other people's lives yeah and... she's got a sort of like spider on the web quality to her um yeah. where she is the sort of stationary center of this family pulling the strings um in ways that are like ultimately that are at least to begin with are completely unknowable to anyone outside of the family um, and that the family itself cannot articulate, despite their best efforts. Which leads to no small amount of fascination from just happen to be two psychologists that are happen to be wandering through the area. Psychiatrists, <laughs> well, I should say. Yeah. Well, well, I guess it was unclear to me that Sarah King was a psychiatrist. It was just like she ju just finished her schooling. And yeah. So and she seems like was interested well in, in yeah. 
psychiatry, psychiatry or, yeah. or whatever. Um, she's but, their equivalent of an MD, but she hasn't gotten any specialty beyond yes, that. Whereas right. Dr. Girard is an illustrious member of the field of psychiatry in this period. And it's Everyone so knows him, weird. which is so interesting. Like, he's very much the Freud figure of Oh, this yeah, whole... he, is, he, is a Fro- <laughs> he is a Freud figure. If you go into some of the psychology that he uh-huh. goes into for these characters. Uh-huh. He's also very French, and the degree to which those two oh, overlap, Agatha Christie has fun with. Yes. It's a very weird... Uh, thing to sort that that I guess Agatha Christie decides to ponder of like what happens when you get the English view of the sex forward French and Freud like mixed up with each other <laughs> and around a brand new young doctress <laughs> it it goes places oh it goes places and he goes and that doctor goes other places too with the amount of characters that he either hits on or suggests things with before this story is done <laughs> but. This family unit, which we see in the coming scenes, which we see very much through the lens initially of Sarah King and Dr. Gerard, Mm -hmm. is a fascinatingly twisted unit that shouldn't exist in the broader world. It's the kind of thing that only could exist really in an isolated Petri dish, which almost just adds to their confusion that it is now just out in the world for everybody to see. Right. But I think this is a really interestingly written and observed case of abuse where... Like, a lot of books, like, I think deal with it differently. Um, And that it's written so long ago and so, like, relevantly to, like, what it it might look like from the outside. Mm -hmm. Um, That, like, I can understand people just, like, not liking it or thinking it's, you know, a little too unreal. But... It isn't. It, it, it's one of the things that always drew me to the play originally. Was when I was actually, I was actually both read and watched the play before I ever read the short story or the novel. And this this was always remarkably authentic, real, and kind of terrifying to me in terms of the characterization mm-hmm. of Mrs. Boynton and just the utterly malevolent god effect she has in the family around her. Mm-hmm. To the point, yeah. like like you guys said, it's a family that can't even necessarily express how wrong she is because it has become so twistedly baseline for their lives. They've never right. experienced anything else except for our one kind of outlier character in the daughter-in-law mm-hmm. um, who has Nadine. some, Ooh. yes, who has some right. um, some means of resistance, although she has also been, uh, she's also so entangled in the situation that it's difficult for her to actually get out as well. Right. I don't know about you, y'all, but I'm inclined to skip a lot of the travelogue. Yeah, uh, I, we, it's beautiful. Story. There's interesting stuff it, going on. I don't think we need to discuss it. it it's it's fun. I like the, the little touches that clearly indicate that Agatha Christie was there. Mm-hmm. I like the mm-hmm. little hints that she couldn't have known when she was writing this about what future tensions would be. Uh-huh. <laughs> with, with all of their Arabic guides complaining about the Jews all the damn time, this is about <laughs> 10 years before that that war happened, yep. before the British Mount... Yeah. Before the British mandated Palestine ceased to exist, I really find it interesting that those tensions are obviously simmering, and and um, that everybody's like, "This is so tiring." Can't they just not? Which <laughs> is so the British philosophy to that. It's just, would you please stop killing? No, no, you won't stop killing each other. Then we're just gone. Just we're, we're washing our hands of this situation. Uh, but I like those little touches. I like the little side characters in the form of the Bedouin that are leading them around. Yes. Of um, the, the one particular tour guide who is 
everyone's kind of pissing on, but is actually remarkably competent in his job and just with nonstop bluster in terms of dealing with these just petty English bastards he has to manage all the damn time. Yeah, he actually mm-hmm. seemed great. I want him as my tour guide for... Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was awesome. We were promised a large luxury Jesus. car, and this is a medium-large luxury car. I can't believe you don't have a larger luxury car to fit all of us who have decided to be in the same car at the same time, because okay. screw you. St- stupid English, you need to understand, we're going to Petra. <laughs> there isn't a highway. We need a vehicle that can actually get there. No, no, no. it needs to seat six to be comfortable. So all of that is great. All of that is authentic. All of that's just fun little works that make the first half of the story, though entirely unexpected as a travelogue, still fun, mm-hmm. still interesting, even mm-hmm. if it isn't necessarily what we're buying into. And there are a lot of, like, in, you know, interesting conversations that get at what we were talking about before that happen within the travelogue part. Well, th- th- this is what I wanted to focus on. Yes. That we can skip the moving between locations. Yes. Petra is beautiful. I want to go there someday. The Red, the Red Valley and all that. All the characters. All wonderful stuff. The characters themselves and the interactions. Though. Let's focus on that before we set up the mystery, because yes. that's going to lead to a lot of attention. Yeah. Let's let's start first about. Um, let's start if you guys are okay with it. Let's start first about the family, and then we can go to the observers of the family. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so um, who all are we including in the family? <laughs> let's say everybody that's under the whole Boynton Boynton name, and okay. also uh, and also Cope. Why not? <laughs> right. That's where yeah, I was he's going. The, he like, desperately like... wants to be. <laughs> right. Uh, well, I mean, we, we've discussed a bit of the matriarch herself, but yeah, she, I love the non-human descriptions we constantly get of yeah. her. Yeah. She is constantly compared to being like a malevolent religious idol. She's always put in the view that there is something about her that is almost just more abstractly part of a mythological world mm-hmm. than anything that should be part of the present. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so she actually and like, like her... seems... She, to the extent that by the time they get to Petra, she is like a part of the landscape, not a person in and of herself, which is such an incredible description of what's going on with her and how out of, out of, out of time, out of place she actually is. Yeah. And the like looks that she gives and sort of the fear, like the aura that she exudes around her family, where like when like her spotlight gaze just like fixates on one of them, like how much they change so quickly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, I think you really start to get a sense of her, uh, you know, somewhere between like demanding and capricious nature of like, what's going to happen. Like, they don't know what's going to happen. They don't know when it's going to happen, but it will happen and it's going to be bad. Yeah. On both of your points there, one of the most, my favorite visuals that I still have with me, both from the play and from this, is of Mrs. Boynton as that kind of just rock-carved Buddha figure just sitting in the uh, the cave mouth with the sun kind of putting her in permanent shadow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It It's like you've just found a, a, a demonic idol from the Exorcist in terms <laughs> of how carefully that's described and the evocative effect yeah. of that. Yeah. And BJ, like you said... We see in these kind of early pages the level of control she has, not over the family's actions, but their psychology, that when she tells her youngest daughter, her actual daughter, that, no, you have a headache, you feel sick, you almost can imagine in your head that she suddenly does have a headache and she does feel sick when her mother tells mm-hmm. us this, yeah. as much as she tries to resist. Mm-hmm. It's not just that she feels overpowered by her mother's will, it's that she almost has that kind of psychosomatic effect on her when she directs her in that kind of way. And the same is true for the rest of them. That mean. By background, Mrs. Boynton, we hear, is a former matriarch of a prison, or a government... What's the term they use? A, a wardess of the prison, yeah. I think it is? Oh, yeah, like a warden in a women's prison or something yeah. like that. Um, uh, and 
she sort of retired from that to take over the same job in this Boynton family, marrying <laughs> into uh, a widower of with three children, I believe. It is, yep. Um, and I think hates the fact that she had to quit her job or something. Um, but we do, we do get a little bit more in the psychology, like, uh, and it's talked about whether she became a sadist because she was in this prison um or the the uh theory that's put forth that no no she became a warden in a prison because she liked carrying out her will on other people that couldn't say no the the story seems to embrace the conclusion that she is just a narcissistic sadist and so is gravitated in directions that allowed her to fulfill those whims yeah right um but she has that background. She is, has has essentially a life estate from the now de- from from her now dead husband that allows her to completely manage the assets of the children as long as she's alive. And then after she dies, they'll inherit everything. And she's used every opportunity in her power to abuse, control, manipulate, and isolate her children to her own whims and desires. Yes, as her own dictator of her very tiny little kingdom. Yeah. Um. um and basically, you know, in that has been. Uh, they've talked about doing all their schooling or getting some jobs, and basically she shuts that down quickly. And it's like, no, your family needs you, or like you need to be here, and there's no reason for you to get a job. Like we have the money that you don't need to do it. Yeah, you, you can almost imagine that though she is strongly suggested to be dying, or at least in very poor health, she's almost just used that as another just another weapon to use to manipulate, to guilt, mm-hmm. to control. To the point that she's even incorporated into her family a nurse in the form of Nadine so as to further isolate themselves from the surrounding world in any other context. Which also yeah. has then has the effect of, you know, she has, uh, for a wide variety of reasons, married her uh, eldest son, or stepson, I suppose, off to hmm. Nadine, the nurse, to keep things mm-hmm. in the family, as it were. Yes. And each of her children have dealt with this just what is applied to be decades of just profound abuse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, psychological abuse in different ways. That the oldest son, Lennox, I believe his name mm-hmm. is, who's married to Nadine, has essentially just kind of retreated into himself and is just utterly passive to the world as a means of coping with this. That denied the opportunity to have any independent life, to be a man, as he often struggles with in the story, he has kind of given up on everything and is just kind of going with the flow as a means of coping with otherwise dashing against the rocks. Mm-hmm. Um, the two middle children have kind of still got a hope and a bit of spark in them, but with a certain, as described by various psychological figures in the story, a nervous adit- agitation towards violence or profound deed. Yeah, they're, 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 they're the f- a little bit more jittery. They sort of go along, but they're angry about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the other thing to like assess is uh nadine yeah nadine is the pair is the pair to lennox of where she was almost intent it's almost suggested that she was in some way shopped or approved of by by the mom absolutely right. uh, yeah um and, and and it almost seems like a like trying to lead him along to think that like he could get out sometime and and that's like part of the reason for the approval because mm-hmm. Um, she seems to be like, oh, like, yeah, I'll take care of your mom, but like, we should do something with our lives. And we sort of, well, she, she thought that they would, I mean, she, when she came into this, she didn't know the extent to which the manipulation was actually happening. And part of the reason that the, 
I mean, what didn't Linux actually try to get out? Well, it was essentially you guys probably like the Amish concept of uh, rumspringer mm-hmm. of when they yeah. get the they got the one day to rum free. It's almost suggested that he kind of snuck out to do one day of that mm-hmm. at, at like a party, and he met a girl, and he came back, and his mom then went, "Oh, this is a way to hurt you more." Yes. <laughs> Not only you, yeah. but also this girl, because you get 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 married to somebody and have a hope of the future that I then get to crush through you. And then I get to manipulate profoundly hurt her through the idea that she had a love and hope for you that she's going to be constantly disappointed and thwarted upon. Perfect. It's um, her every little malevolent whim played out. Right. And so Nadine is actually one of my favorite characters in the story just because though she's got this profound unhappiness put upon her, though she's profoundly disappointed, she's entirely unbroken. Yes. She is stubbornly adhering to herself and her own desires, even though she still has hopes that they could go in the way she originally planned. But mm-hmm. she's not cowed by the mother. Well, she she works around her. She doesn't she doesn't confront her directly about things. But there's strong suggestion that she is still an independent will. I feel. Yeah. So I think you're. I would agree with the independent will, but I would still say she's kind of broken in how like she responds and and falls into her own manipulation with her husband. I mean, like, I I don't disagree with that as a, it may kind of be a necessary thing for her to be doing to try and live her own life, but this clearly isn't how she thought she was gonna live her life and plan to. And so I would say she's profoundly changed, but still her own person, sort of unlike a lot of uh, the Boynton children. She certainly has a hope of a life outside of the family in a way that none of mm-hmm. the rest of them do. But you can right. get into a fun debate with the presence of Jefferson Cope and the mother's seemingly encouragement from being around. Mm-hmm. Whether her hope for another future or hope for an escape is not just another element of the mom's plan. Yes. To further hurt and further control her children. That in some ways, her fleeing now would be an act of defeat and giving up. And just right. kind of surrendering to the mom's ultimate control of the family, which she's stubbornly trying to resist and as we see in the story she has a bit of a hail mary planned with respect to it though again whether that's just part of the mom's plan or not who knows the two middle children we we see as being the ones that are initially plotting the murder they're kind of the emotional core to the story in some ways because they're the ones that are most inclined to interact with other people mm-hmm. right and they're the ones that reach out to both dr gerard and particularly sarah king over the story to best express their own views about what the hell is happening and what the hell needs to be done and I think that they have somewhat of a support system between each other that this they're t- they're twins, is going they? on. And are, they, are they literally twins or they just look a hell of a lot alike? I don't remember if they're twins or if they're just like the closest in age and have always yeah. been close. I'm not sure. They, they function almost like twins yeah. in just terms of how the two yeah. of them are joined at the hip and constantly plotting together and are seemingly working independently from the rest of the family in a lot of ways and are even as the story later shows, willing to set up or change evidence or even accept, you know, charges for murder to protect each other. They, yeah, they certainly feel responsible for each other um, in ways that we, we don't really see between, like, Lennox and the, and the let's call them the twins, for, for example. Yeah. And in terms of age, these two are young. I was getting, like, probably early 20s kind of vibes yeah. from yeah. these two. Yeah, Th- that there's... was my guess. I mean, also because we know that Sarah King is about that age young 20s mm-hmm. mid mid 20s young 20s yeah kind of branch um so i mean because presumably she did a bachelor's uh in medicine is where i'm going young 20s and is this is like right after that 
she's part of the reason I almost feel that she's older is because the main point of comparison we have for her is Raymond, who comes across like a twelve-year-old by comparison in terms right. of just how he carries yeah. himself. But I that's mean, that makes pointedly stunted yeah. on his part. <laughs> He's pointedly stunted, as several people comment mm-hmm. on. Um, and but I mean, the other reason that I think that they're a bit older is because the youngest. <laughs> Jenny. Um, what what is her actual name? It's it's something weird and complex. So it's like Genevieve or something. Yeah. It's like uh, Gen, it's like Genova or something like that. Yeah. Um, she is fun. Uh, she her means of coping is to not retreat into herself. Anastasia. <laughs> it is not to you know respond aggressively to the world. It is to. Go into a world of fantastic self-importance. Mm-hmm. Um, which, and, like, I feel like we didn't see a lot before it was explained to us that's what she did. Because, like, I guess I, my reading of it felt a lot more like she was put upon and, like, told to do things by her mother. But there wasn't, like, as much of a, I mean, like, the, the you know, Russian Bolsheviks or whatever out to get me kind of thing. Well, I mean, I think that we didn't see it early on because we never saw, we never saw Jenny without her mother. Um, right. But I think it was disgust. We get one scene of where the initial scenes we see with her mother, it's just her mother telling what to do and her acting like a petulant little child and then submitting to her mother's will. The mm-hmm. only time we really get to see her get independent is early on of when she runs away briefly to talk to Dr. Gerard mm-hmm. right. and First tells him that I'm, you know, I'm fleeing royalty. There's people constantly after me. You have to protect me. I trust you. And I love the scene just cuts there. Can you just almost imagine Dr. Gerard's face after, you know, she yeah. just runs away going, the fuck? <laughs> I'm on vacation, damn it. Stop. The patient shouldn't be coming to me. Oh, he can't help himself anyway, though. Oh, no, no. Yeah. He, he really can't. There, there someone... are young ladies around me wanting to talk to me. This is the best vacation ever. How old do we think she is? Because I need to decide how creepy Dr. Gerard is. I, I mean, I think that, like, the ages of these children get so messed up. But, I mean, I think that she's, like, 18. I, you know. Yeah, that's why I was going to say It's creepy, but not, like, 19. Not. It, it's only, it's creepy in the sense that he is clearly attracted to her. But a lot of characters are. Yeah. Pretty much all the female characters in this story, with the notable exception of the older ones, are <laughs> described as being particularly attractive in their own ways. Yeah. Strikingly yeah. so. And particularly, um, Jenny is almost described in being cherubic kind of terms, where she has a constant halo of red hair about her. Yeah. She wanders like an Ophelia character removed from the world wherever she goes, probably playing Ophelia in the last that we see of her. Um, um, yeah, so, I, like I got a sense of like uh, Shakespearean, like elven queen kind of thing, you know, not quite human. I think we get a little bit of that like fae-like creature yeah. kind of thing going on. Which is it fun? Because it's an intentional act on her part. Yeah. Of where she does have that kind of physicality, but it's being heightened by the fact of just her psych- how she's chosen to express her psychology in the world, of right. being this kind of distant, removed, briefly crossing into our world kind of mm-hmm. fey creature. Mm-hmm. And it apparently works on people because everyone's just immediately taken with her whenever they kind of see her going about. <laughs> yeah. And so I guess, like, with that, how old do you think Dr. Gerard is? Oh, oldish. I mean, I, at I, least forties. Yeah, I was thinking f- late forties, early fifties. Yeah, yeah, mid forties to to mid fifties ish. I mean, maybe even into like late fifties, early sixties, sort of depending on. I mean, because it's it's kind of hard to reach preeminence like 
yeah. is described before that. He's, he is of an earlier era, so it's possible yeah. he could have done it a little bit sooner or earlier. Right. Um, but in a modern lens, he looks like that. Particularly, we kind of get the, some of those vibes when Sarah King's responding to his constant aggressive hitting on her by basically mm-hmm. saying, dude, stop. <laughs> Just, no. What makes it kind of creepy, though, as we'll see later, is that he's not only clearly attracted to Jenny in a way that gets kind of uncomfortable, he f- thinks he's dreaming and imagining her when he's in a fever dream. Yeah, yeah. He intends to be her doctor. He intends to provide her psychological care. He intends uh, well, to bring her to his institution. And and care for her and, like, rehabilitate her. Th- this seems very... Um, Freudian. I was going to say, is it Nightingale Syndrome? It, it, it's an element of Florence Nightingale sure. syndrome, yes. Um, or at least he's hoping. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, well, Florence Nightingale, notably, that, that defect's going nurse to patient rather than the other way around, right? Or is it, does that go both ways? Because I think there's a different term for it. Well, okay, something I, I thought about yeah. Nightingale was patient to nurse. Like I can choose them. Care, but anyway. Um, but, and... That sets up the members of the family are, and Nadine, of course, as we've talked about, is being right. Yes, a very int- she's she's in some ways reminds me of the main female character just from, or at least with the perspective other characters have on her, of the main female character, a witness for the prosecution, mm. of where she is a distant, removed, and mysterious character, and is all the more alluring to other characters because of mm-hmm. that. But, but I also just imagine her as like the only normal one in the bunch, and everybody's confused by that, rather than she like, comes across that way. Yeah, you know this unknown actress that's you know uniquely pretty and and whatever else it's just more like you see i I don't know like you see a family in uh like particular garb and you know given your amish thing before i was gonna say like in bonnets and 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 things like that (laughs) and then you have somebody in jeans jeans. and a (laughs) t-shirt and it's like they're clearly other but like a normal other not if anything, it almost just makes the others seem that much more other that she has some kind of connection back to the real world in the way they don't. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but appropriately then, another person who has a connection to the real world is very much paired with her is Jefferson Cope. Yes. Who I say in all meanings of the term is a nice guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's interestingly unclear as to what his... Uh, relationship with a family was determined is, like how like how that happened yeah i mean i sort of imagine him as like the neighbor boy that like mrs boynton like had some interest in and was like kind of nice and then they like would come over for dinner enough and then it was just like you're part of the family now ish and like the only time that she was nice to her kids was when he was around it's it's not clear. He clearly is very much attached to the family. He's viewed as part, being part of their circle in a way that seemingly nobody else is. Right. They're purposefully right. isolated, but he's in. The only connection we know for a fact he has historically is to Nadine. Yes. Right. That the two of them were long since friends. The two of them had a Air close relationship. Get recorded. I was trying to express it. My <laughs> I, I think I'm the doing this also for you. Well. <laughs> of he's all I man. To cut through it, he has always been very much in love with Nadine. Yes, and is holding right. a and torch all... for her. Oh man, is he? I mean, this uh, is like an Olympic torch. Yeah. It's been lit for a really yeah. long time, and and it's been carried. And he's um, done the 
always fun, frustrating kind of view that he's kind of almost viewing it as a martyr. Yes. That mm-hmm. the fact that he's carrying a torch for her and not acting on it is a profound act of love and friendship to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rather than something that I'm sure she finds awkward every goddamn day. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it and, is complicated uh, the other thing... because, the, because the family is so weird is that there actually is an element of, like, I don't know, me reading him as, like, bizarre and, like, sort of skeezy as he can be. There is an element of like he he does offer her real escape from this well, batshit this, situation this, she's in. Yeah, this is one of the reasons that I say that I mean nice guy in all meanings yeah. of the term. He is actually a nice guy. Yes. He right. He legitimately is doing this seemingly as much as he's making it a martyr complex, as much as he wants this to work out. He does seemingly still be here under no real hope that it will, mm-hmm. just because he really does care for them and want good things for them. So that so, was kind of unclear to me and I maybe I just missed it but like it seemed like he kind of was on this trip separate from them (laughs) saw them and was just like all right I guess like let's hang out because I know you people which I guess is kind of a very uh American slash English thing to do that like we're the only people that talk about being expats yeah but like it, it was just like a very I imagine there was a, oh, you guys are going to a very interesting and romantic part of the country. I'll go with you. <laughs> kind of like, oh, we what? happen to be on the same trip? That What a coincidence. Who could have guessed? Nadine, do you want to go walking for a bit? There seems to be three possibilities here. Possibility number one, it is truly just a story-making convention coincidence. Mm-hmm. Sure, maybe. And as you said, there is an inherent nature from people that speak the same language to flock together. <laughs> as you see in tour groups everywhere. Yes. Possibility number two, this is just continuing the profound manipulation of the mom, and she secretly, quietly either invited him or encouraged in a way that he would do this. Yeah. Possible. Mm-hmm. Op- option number three, he found they were going and planned his own trip around that so he could hang out <laughs> close to them. Any of those can work. Uh, all of those, given the weirdness of the situation, those all seem equally it, likely. It yeah. may be all three. Who the hell knows? As said, I don't want to cast too many aspersions on him. He's a weird kind of character, and he comes across as a remarkable doofus. But he does seem legitimately dedicated to the family, even if he has his own personal goals attached, and even if he doesn't at all, at least at first, understand what the hell is going on. Yeah. Right. And his main target early is that he's incredibly frustrated with Linux. That he wants Nadine to be happy, and he blames Linux that she isn't, Mm -hmm. because he doesn't really understand the mom's character yet. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's unclear, like, why, it's a little unclear to me why he spends so much time with his family from everything that we are given to believe about him. It's unclear why he doesn't, is he willfully not understanding the mom's character? Like, if this has been going on for years, as it seems to have been, like, what is going, why does he not understand at least a little more than he seems to? Well, my assumption is she's so incredibly two-faced. That, like, when there are other people around... I don't... I mean, think about how she behaves in these hotels to, like, strangers. I don't think she's two-faced. I think that she's exactly the same to everyone. So, like, but when she's, like... I don't know. I think that there's a lot of behavior that that we see towards her kids and, like, their reactions that they have in some of their backstory that we go, oh, like, she's just terrible. Whereas other people are, like... Oh, like, yeah, you have a headache. You probably don't want to go on a long walk. Why don't you rest? Is like a very different 
But we see that, I mean, we see that immediately through Sarah King's eyes. I'm going to agree with both of you in different ways. That, Sarah, I absolutely agree with you that she doesn't make an effort to seemingly hide how she treats her children when other people are watching. Because the first thing we have with Sarah King and Dr. Gerard is them immediately going, well, that family is psychologically weird. They're able to immediately read the situation. It doesn't seem like you necessarily need an expert lens to do it. However, BJ, on your point, whenever she's herself interacting with people outside of her immediate family, with the notable mm-hmm. example of Sarah King, ex- exception of Sarah King, because reasons mm-hmm. that we'll get into, she immediately comes across them as being somewhat weird, but polite and a lady of society and whatever else. So we have several other people seemingly comment that she's fine. She's American and that should be judged, but otherwise she's fine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but so with Jefferson Cope, it either is he's hasn't spent that much time internally with the family and mm-hmm. is just focused on Nadine and he hasn't seen it and he's only interacted with the mom directly and she comes across fine to him or he's just a doofus which several of the characters say that he is sure. right yeah and like I guess it's I imagine a lot of the time that he's spent with him he's like invited over for a Sunday dinner that's incredibly quiet while Miss Boynton Mrs. Boynton talks mm-hmm. and sort of holds court and everybody's like mouseish in their corner and there's nothing overtly terrible going on. It's just like, uh, you know, and everybody's maybe polite and, and that's sort of it. And he's just like, oh, you know, they're just a quiet family. And, and I, you know, and so, completely so in love with, you know, this lady. And so I'm going to keep spending time with them. But you don't get like the abuse out in the open. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, t- I take your point that like it, there there is an element of there is a, an element of facade that is presented to uh, to other people outside of the family but uh, like jefferson cope just reads as such a willfully ignorant person to me that i do not believe that he doesn't know what's going on it's fun too to have other characters comment on him i think it's either dr gerard or hercule poirot they basically just say he is that kind of innocent doofus that just sees the world as a good place and he just can't mentally cope with the idea that there are dark people out there yeah. Woe unto him that he doesn't have that ability to predict that. <laughs> um, our other two major characters we get early, and I really kind of frame the other major characters we have for the story until later. We'll get to that. <laughs> the second are, are Sarah King and Dr. Gerard. Yeah. Sarah mm-hmm. King is meant to be the model of the new professional woman. She is meant to embody a new age of what being a young woman in society is. Ag- almost aggressively so. She in some ways, it's a fun degree of tension in the early half of the story about what it is to be a man and a woman in that day and age. Mm-hmm. And yeah. none of the characters really agreeing with each other on what the, what either of those things should be. <laughs> Which is also, like, Sarah King is a very weird mix of, like, ingenue and professional. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, it sort of plays well into uh, Dr. Gerard and her having conversations about, like, the real world, life, and the psychiatry of crazy people that wouldn't have felt as reasonable with many other characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it, it's fun also just to see just how much the you know concept of feminism has, invo- has evolved over time is that Sarah King during her era would be very much fitting the definition of that era of feminism in terms of her outlook, her goals, her desire to not be viewed as just being a woman or being a woman's success. Some of it comes across as more than a little passe, based where things have evolved, but I think it should be viewed within the lens of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Gerard, meanwhile, comes across as just being, I don't know, French. maybe a cer- <laughs> very French, very French, and also <laughs> a certain element of bored. 
Yeah. I feel like he's a character... I mean, Sarah King gets involved in this story because she has a, a certain immediate fascination or attraction to Raymond. Mm-hmm. With you, you, you just, We discussed the idea of, you know, Florence Nightingale syndrome. A lot of that going on there between the two of them. Um, that she, in many ways, it almost comes across as she's looking for somebody that can be less threatening to her. And someone mm-hmm. that she can help cure and help and treat and maybe mother to a certain degree. And he's looking for that or just any way of escaping <laughs> from this family yeah uh so she has a very personal reason for getting devolved dr gerard has nothing other than just professional curiosity and having nothing else to do but man does he insert himself in the story yes i mean but also how much of a awful time is dr gerard having like if we sort of accept all of the uh stereotypes that are going along where the only people that like he's the only frenchman He's the the only people that are maybe in his peer group are the other two British ladies who oh my god I no one wants to spend time with them. They are almost Shakespearean in terms of our initial introduction to them of what joke characters they come across yeah. initially. Yeah, and the other choices are a pretty young doctor and a crazy family. <laughs> He hangs out with the pretty young doctor a little bit and invites her to let's stare at the crazy people and talk professionally, because what the hell else are we going to do? I mean... It seems reasonable enough. Yeah, he's got nothing uh, like, else to do. I think we should poo-poo some of the things that he comes out with, but I'm saying that like his initial choices aren't ones that I disagree with. Are, are you suggesting that he has a complaint to file with his travel company that he didn't get paired with a better tour group? I I would probably go off on my own if I were stuck with this. <laughs> I would I would be hanging out with the Bedouin uh, tour guide at this point. Yeah. Oh, damn straight. He sounds. Let's fun. drink some um, tea and talk about things. This is not. <laughs> <laughs> and with without your travel guide there to question him on every bit of historical trivia that he provides. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we let's skip Annabelle Amabel <laughs> Pierce because. Sure. Yeah. Um, but I think we need to mention Lady Westholm at least briefly. Yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> we'll get there. Uh, uh, she is also very much being assigned a trope. And it's one of where there are even elements of mockery and kind of respect seeming from com- seemingly coming from Agatha Christie with respect to her. Yeah. That she is a new woman in many, other wa- many ways that Sarah King represents, but in a much more aggressive fashion. That she is a lady of she is a member of parliament. She's a lady of society. She has aggressive political goals. She is bringing about reforms. She has a view of the future, and she is not ready to take guff from anybody on any of those points that I've just raised. So, I think this is an interesting commentary on sort of what is happening with the gentry of the UK at the time, and like what, like where that can they can sort of end up. And mm-hmm. so that she ends up being American and things like that are, are a little different, uh, sort of. But it's kind of like a, well, there are a couple of pastimes that you can have. And one is going out in the country and shooting things or, uh, you know, planting a bunch of gardens and whatever else. Um, and the other is to become like super politically active and it sounds like that's the route that she's taken and her husband is sort of the other side of it and it's like you know doing those acceptable things like golfing and duck hunting um etc well and this is a little bit complicated kind of in this idea spencer that you that you brought up about um her as 
as a type of new woman as well, because like the way that she is going about her political activity is not socially acceptable. It's fine for women no. to have a cause. You're encouraged mm -hmm. to have a cause, but to actually right. become politically active in that cause is like poo-pooed. So the, it, like yes. that kind of choice beyond like I'm going to raise money for the local school for you know new books or whatever it is is I think this is like a very uh interesting commentary on like essentially Hillary Clinton <laughs> well yeah Where... I mean her first ladyship was so contentious 60 years early yeah um, yeah because she I, was I, actually I mean, politically like it's a... active instead of exactly yeah. Um, and sort of how that was looked and, and interestingly, it, the views didn't really change in 60 nope. years. Nope. <laughs> and, and it's, it, it's fun too, to analyze kind of what Agatha Christie may even think about just this new concept that's forming because there's no small amount of mockery yes. or judging from the other characters, this discomfort around her, but she also takes pains to say that she's remarkably successful. Yeah. That she's I, I, I think it's more Agatha Christie hates that personality, but respects yeah. the accomplishment. It's a fun and mix. It, it's a, there are people that you, that everybody has met that have distinct opinions on things and have, are basically, she's like the one-upsmanship and, you know, tells you how you should think about all sorts of things, but it's also accomplished a lot. So there, there are like reasons to listen to her, except it's tiring every time you do. Uh, also, just to very much assign this to an era, I fully suspect that the fact that she's American and has a W last name is a bit of historical in-joke to, you know, <laughs> Wallace Warfield, the American socialite that married a king and got him to, you know, be removed mm -hmm. essentially from the Brit from the British order of succession. Yep. <laughs> I think this is being a rather pointed joke that most people at the time would have a very little polite chuckle at. Yeah. In terms of some comparisons there. Uh, uh, so there might be an M last name, like... Uh, Marcus, if this were written more recently, possibly yes, <laughs> that could be a thing. Um, because it's similar. She married. She married a British, uh, something like a minor British noble who just didn't want to do shit, and she suddenly used his position and title to do a lot of shit while he just mm -hmm. kind of removed himself from things. Um, that really sets up our characters. They also has her hanger on Miss Pierce, who does nothing other than inaccurately describe things, and that actually plays rather relevant to the story later. She's also very scared of heights, and yes, yes she's, so she, that's she's all we really of, need to know about her character. She's scared of heights, she's a weak personality, she's going to go along with anybody else's other story, and she's mostly there to be a hanger-on, primarily of Lady Weston. Yes. Yeah. We journey to Petra, mm -hmm. things happen along the way, fun travelogue, commentary on, on horse health and, you know, local Bedouin practices. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, we get there. A bit of an odd event occurs in that Mrs. Boynton allows her children kind of free reign to go exploring one day, which... Almost commends them to do so. Yes. Yes. Which catches them all off guard, but they just have a seemingly one of the f most pleasant days they've had in years, <laughs> if not their lives, away from her. They partner up in various ways that are pointedly not described in detail at this point in the story. And they return in different orders at different times to go sit down for dinner with some very frustrated Bedouin servants that weren't told that they were going out for a tour, and now the entire itinerary has been thrown out the window. And they didn't come back for tea, and now they're insisting on tea, even though it's dinner time, because of course the British are doing that. And you're Americans, why are you asking for tea right now? Come on! <laughs> um, 
But as part of this process, they need to assemble everybody together, and they see up on the cliff in her cave, like the dark, twisted idol that she is, is still Mrs. Boynton, unmoving. A servant is... Go fetch her. Go, go, go fetch Mrs. Boynton, because we are not going back up there. Yeah, none of the family goes. They all kind of stare at each other weirdly, and a servant goes instead, who probably runs back in no small estate of panic. A doctor is brought, and Miss King verifies, because Dr. Gerard is apparently unavailable right now due to a sudden bout of malaria, which really sucks for him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, malaria can reoccur at various times later on in life and various other events. It seems to be what he's going through here. Yeah, it's almost like Lyme uh, disease. You can... Yeah, just relapse. Yeah, stressors um, and whatever else can pop back in. So it, he said a sudden reoccurrence, and he just drops when that happens and goes into his tent. Yeah. It's bad. Um, so Miss King goes and then promptly returns and dramatically promptly, promptly reveals to the family, so your mom's dead. She's real dead. Real dead now. Um, this may put a bit of a damper on the rest of the trip. And Except it doesn't, really. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Pretty much immediately, everyone's having a better Ding day. Dong, which is dead. <laughs> <laughs> Munchkins are out. And it's at this point, the very much other story of this story starts. Yes. Yeah. We get a colonel something or other, I believe, that is, of course, there's a British colonel that's like, oh, bother, I have to deal with a murder that happened in an area that, like, I guess I'm in charge of, and it's an American, <laughs> do we even really care? Oh, uh, somebody heard that Poirot is in town. We should enlist his services because he'll take care of it because somebody up the chain is probably going to be asking me why an American died in my prefecture or whatever. Uh, it, it was another mandate. He's a senior figure in the British mandate of Transjordania. Uh, which British military actually had a significant presence there and a very well-trained local force. So he probably factors into that. He did uh, not seem like the well-trained local force, but I agree. Otherwise. Well, and he's a fun physicality for the character because Poirot, Poirot seems to think that he's a remarkably competent, intelligent individual that has just utterly given up caring about appearances <laughs> or just... The little yeah. the little details of his own continence. Mm -hmm. So, and then the other thing that I thoroughly appreciate but I don't really have a frame of reference for is how, what sort of tie he is wearing and how <laughs> it ends up ear. where it does. <laughs> like, I just, um, I, I kind of pictured him just kind of sweeping it back and it going around his ear or something, but I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I also, um, when imagining a lot of this every so often I fell back on some, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan to imagine some of the characters and like their their state of dress in these. And while I know it's not correct, um, he's not the modern major general. <laughs> sure, but <laughs> he's got some hallmarks, but he's not in terms of his psychology. What he actually is, we find out of the course of the story, is basically oddly a bit of a reader stand-in yes in the sense that he just loves mysteries and his hero is here and he's almost just pictured and he said no he's he's so excited because he doesn't believe that poirot is going to be able to solve it in the time that he's allowed himself ha ha it yeah he's like he's like somebody that's meeting their you know their utter hero in the media for the first time and just sets them a challenge to see whether they're really that awesome 
Because there's a certain implication that he could totally resolve the situation himself, kind of, maybe, if he wanted to. <laughs> but Poirot's here, and he gets to see Poirot work. Yeah. <laughs> he has he has no intention, really, of prosecuting these people. He's kind of frustrated that he can't, but from a political standpoint, yeah. he can't bring charges on them. It's foreign right. nationals. He can only hold them for so long. He has to send evidence all the way to Cairo to get back. He'd never get it in time. This is just going to be a write-off note in his book, and he knows that. Mm -hmm. But Poirot is here, and though he has no hopes, well, no actual belief that he could solve the crime, man, is he delighting <laughs> the opportunity to give him a challenge. Um, and he's almost squeeing at various moments as he's just watching him work. Uh -huh. I, 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 like, I, I definitely was kind of in the same boat, and it has been so long since I've seen any of the TV shows or, or read any of it. I forget how hilariously self-confident Poirot is. Just, <laughs> just like, yeah, yeah. give me like five minutes with each of the people and 24 hours and, and I'll let you know. Yeah, it's like a by dinner tomorrow yeah. night, you will know. Yeah. I will, you will know and the truth. I will bring you the right. truth. And this is, you know, I, I feel like the um, sort of obvious comparison is, is Sherlock Holmes in the like mm -hmm. aggressively confident and full of himself but this is just so like completely on the other side of quiet and well of course i will like well it's the cozier version like right it, it is the cozier version of sherlock holmes and it's it's he's such a fun transitionary figure in terms of like the modern detective mm -hmm. from like a sherlock holmes figure to those that have come afterwards mm -hmm. of where you can just see the hallmarks and elements of like a character like monk or certain modern detectives like that mm -hmm. coming out of the just purposefully odd funny kind of brilliant detective like poirot yeah. that he almost feels just like an intermediary intermediary point to then branch to all the modern equivalents that have kind of emerged since mm -hmm. Which is also kind of funny because we have uh, sort of one of the like armchair detectives who is often out, out of his armchair in, in, in like random stories that, that get, you know, well read. But I think more commonly is just not going anywhere, listening to stuff and like sending people to get stuff. One of the fun hallmarks for Poirot is that most of the time he's not hired to do this shit. He's just there. He's just around. <laughs> He's just on the train. He's taking a cruise of the Nile. He's just in a hotel and things happen. To the point that he almost expresses a certain degree of amusement at the start of the story that, oh, no, no, no. Clearly, it's not one of those again. <laughs> clearly, I'm, 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 clearly, it's not actually a murder mystery. I'm just bored and on vacation. I need to stop thinking that murders just follow me. Yeah. But it does. Mm -hmm. And he gets roped in and... I really like this part, this particular, like, almost like 30% of the story is right here of what Poirot is just interviewing people and solely mm -hmm. assembling his case. Yeah. Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue this later. This is actually a rather fair mystery as it turns out, because he's almost doing like a doctoral, um, you know, it's almost like he's trying to diagnose fibromyalgia by the end of the story <laughs> where he's just doing a process of eliminating every other possibility and then what evidence is left. <laughs> right. And what evidence is left is there. Everything yes. is set up. We are given all the information that he works with. He's not summoning anything new necessarily. And what he acquires new later is something that we're acquiring new at the same time. Yes. We just have no reason to think that some of these details are relevant until he's eliminated every other possibility. That, and, that's true. But I, th I think one of the things that, I mean, is, uh, you know, again, it's sort of just how you read it is, is that um, Lady Wessholm 
was American and, and had trouble with the law. That... <laughs> There's a line in there that just straight up almost implies that Poirot is saying that all Americans are criminals. <laughs> or right, that, well, such is to be assumed. <laughs> <laughs> um, there is that, but like, it was a, like, I remember reading this famous thing and it was just like, okay, but there, anyway. there, there is that. The key, um, he, he interviews I, each person in turn. Writes down, like, certain key details, which we are presented with, which I really do appreciate, rather than just, not only is there like the interview, but he writes down a list of like times and something that, that somebody said, like what happened in order. And we get that, I think more than once. We do. So it's like a, here are the notes that Poirot was taking mm -hmm. so you can follow along. I also love that the notes are willfully incomplete in a couple ways that the Colonel calls him out on. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Is it like he's like you know in all the great in all the great mysteries the detective writes down like ten bits of fact that he then presents in a different light that he ever saw before I bet you can't do that Paul writes down <laughs> ten facts and the detective goes you left out this one you left out this one you left out this one you're trying to save those later to appear brilliant <laughs> it's like aha but you will have to wait <laughs> and he just slumps back in his chair and says I'm just so happy that you are here and also pissed off. <laughs> Um, but interviews each person. We get to see Lady Westholm present what one could write off at the time is just excessively annoyed detail about everything that happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Later proves more relevant in terms of what she saw, whatever else. We each, you're each of the persons increasingly apparently trying to what they feel cover for somebody else that they assume did it. Yeah, the yeah. real sort of question is, so there's the question of timings that come comes up, but in that sort of like cover up, there's the question of who has what syringe when. Yeah. Right. It turns out we've got, we know, the things we know is that she has a, a syringe mark in her wrist. Yes. And there, there was a diatoxin or something or dioxin? Digitoxin. Digitoxin, yeah. 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 Um, a you know heart medication has been yeah. removed or lost from Dr. Gerard's medical kit along with his hypodermic syringe. Mm -hmm. And there are apparently at least two other hypodermic syringes floating out there in the world, <laughs> right. baby. But also that she was on digitalis. Yes. Orally uh, administered rather than by injection. Right. And so, but they are very similar drugs, um, one of which is has different potencies and whatever else. And so... Like, there was a brief, like, somebody could have made a little mistake or whatever else. Um, I, th there were sort of other vague possibilities right. tossed yes. out as to, like, why, you know, how much information the murderer would have had to have um, there, to, there to are, do this. There are a lot of fun wheels within wheels when it comes to this mystery. Right. Where, presented at the start of this, literally anybody could have done it. Mm -hmm. Everyone had a motive in their own way. Everyone had potential means. We have all the facts, but in terms of trying to piece them together, how they interlock to form the puzzle is a fun game that we get to see a lot of the steps in. Mm -hmm. Because as is appropriate for Hercule Poirot, he has a hell of a lot of fun going through each step of the psychology, each step of his own resolution, your own personal emotional torment that you're going through this as he does so, be damned. <laughs> yeah. So... Um... And so the other uh, piece that we get with his interviews is sort of everybody has a an interaction, or many people have an interaction with Miss Boynton, Mrs. Boynton, over the course of basically this shortly before dinner time period, where 
She is presumed to have ex- expired. Um, right. And right. some of it is uh, muddied by a time of death that Sarah King uh, came out with and, and that uh, Dr. Girard wasn't there to uh, confirm this sure. time of death. And it's it's that it's the time of death, which she says happened like an hour and a half before other characters said that they were talking with her. Mm-hmm. Right. So that that doesn't square. There's an injection mark in her in her wrist, which she wasn't taking it by injection, and nobody else has an explanation for that. And then there's other little details that just don't perfectly square with everybody's account, like particularly the description of this you know just servant harassing her kind of moment that apparently nobody else saw or was even talked about. Mm-hmm. Right. All of which indicate that somebody is lying here. As it turns out, everyone Every- is. <laughs> <laughs> Every everyone is though for different reasons than one might originally assume. Yes. Because the fun bit of psychology that's work in the story is that. At the moment that we're first investigating this crime, where we as a reader think that everybody could have done it, every one of them thinks somebody else did it. <laughs> yep. And someone that they would um, would like to generally not go down for this crime. Yes. Right. Um, and so, I guess before we really get into who done it, yeah. um, mm-hmm. before that reveal happened, um, who did you think did it? Who, who were you like, going for as to who actually committed the murder. I'll, I'll address me briefly, because I'm not fun with that one. I had already read the play, and so I already thought I knew who did it, and then was shocked to find out it wasn't that person. Well, okay, so... So who was it in the play? I won't... I'm only going to tell you after we're done, because it is so remarkably different. I want to debate... I want to hear y'all's fresh thoughts on it when we get there. Interesting. Okay. Um, Sarah. Uh, Sarah, please. Um, so I thought... Um, I'm trying to remember, like, who, like, right after the death, who I thought immediately had done it. I sort of, I thought that, I think I thought that Nadine had done it. Um, and that it it had actually happened much earlier. And there were a lot of, like, quote-unquote conversations happening with the mother that were either manufactured Mm -hmm. in some way or, um, that had been just sort of, like, imagined by the people who were talking to her in the idea that, like, they talked to her but had never gotten a real response from her and thought that that was just her response. Yeah. Um, and just to answer your question that you asked, BJ, and in support of you, Sarah, in watching and, and reading the play, I originally at this point thought it was Nadine, too. Just mm-hmm. from her own gotcha. motivations and reasons for acting, her prior medical background, the syringe. There were some points that were hidden in her direction. Yeah. Um, yep. Like, so... In the midst of the interviews, yeah. I was becoming more and more convinced that it was Dr. Gerard that <laughs> had dressed up as a servant. Um, you are you are more you are both right and wrong at the same time in a way that is fascinating. So like, there was a lot of things that like didn't quite add up mm-hmm. in uh, that it could have been him. So in Lady Westholm's description of the servant, it, like wearing things that didn't quite fit and like were sort of hastily put on like put on put together and i was just like well he only has like his own oh i don't feel well it's a sudden bout of malaria and i am going to be bedridden for a very short period of time (laughs) and perfectly fine afterwards um and then like i i had this like you know maybe he's acting on this like 
conversation with Sarah King, like we need to take uh, this lady out, um, etc. Um, but the other thing that I do want to mention that I had, and this is like, I just read a little bit too far into plot sometimes. I was minorly hoping uh, before we got to sort of the second act that it was his martyr that we were going to see that like his rapid uh, decline of health, mm. because like we had a long pause from his rapid decline of health to, yeah, it was just about of malaria and he's fine. Mm-hmm. That was revealed quite a bit later. Interesting. That I was just like, that would have been fascinating if like somebody uh, had decided that he had to die and <laughs> Then who was it? <laughs> Whereas every other reader coming. reading this, BJ, knew that the mother was going to die and that was going to be the mystery. We didn't need a second layer. It's literally the first line of the story. But I, No, I, I agree with you, but I like it was just a brief, like, it'd be no. very interesting if both of them died. No, no, it, it, that that could be fun. It could even it could even be more, a fun little a fun almost anti twist if, if the person being set up to be the murdered isn't reality is to kind of a plot a, a plot point an observer of it. Hmm. Um, anyway, but it, it, I mean, Doctor Gerard has some compelling things to point in his favor in the sense that he has both the murder means and the murder weapon, and it's solely his claim that they were in any way missing, and he was alone in the camp while these things were going down, and he is a an interesting fascination with the family and clearly de- developing affections for the youngest daughter. Now, yeah. the fact that he then cues the police into the mystery either suggests that he is not sufficient, that his tracks are covered, that he is willing to inflict just profound psychological horror and torment on the family itself. Weirdly and... Frenchly overconfident. Like, you know, sure. just... Um, I also had this, like... He has this weird relationship with Sarah King that, like kind of is a I did this for you so now you can be happy with like the your 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 boy love um <laughs> yeah that but also just as like a now you'll like me better kind of thing too that like he just had this very weird relationship with everybody around him that like I was like oh this could turn dark mhm okay well um, given that you two had these thoughts and given what we ultimately see of the detailed reveal, where Poirot is having way too much fun. Just, the man enjoys his job so much, and it's got a fun element of sadism in it too, because he knows all of these people are innocent, but wants to put them through the process of the reveal. Uh, so, well, maybe knows. Possibly he's gaining information, I think he knows. Um, but he does. How did y'all feel about who done it? Did it work for you? Was it fair? Do you agree with the conclusions? And how do you feel about what is undeniably an abrupt resolution and very tonally different epilogue? Uh, I kind of want to pretend that the epilogue doesn't exist. As many people feel about the uh, book series that we are also reading in our sister podcast. Yeah, I mean... I don't know about that. (laughs) Maybe it's a very British thing that, you know, there needs to be an epilogue that everybody, you know, dislikes except maybe Spencer... (laughs) You know, we don't need to go to back to Hobbit Town and, and oh, and shut up! <laughs> it's not an epilogue. There's a different epilogue, and I like that epilogue too. <laughs> I like that severe doubling down you just did, Spencer. <laughs> you're both factually wrong, and yes, you're right. Also, in terms of the actual point you were trying to make. Oh boy! Uh, as we say, boy howdy. So, um, 
I, I guess I'm not sure how I feel about this being a fair misser. I think that there are portions of it that are very fair. I, you know, again, I, you know, I miss things while reading as sort of everybody does, but I feel like the key bit that Mrs. Boynton and Lady Westholm knew each other because Lady Westholm was at that prison and was like the key detail that we needed and it just wasn't there early enough. This is weird for me to say this for Agatha Christie, given that she is the grand dame of this field, but one thing I felt like she could have set up just a little bit better was the whole thing about, no, 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 that that malevolent evil I've never forgotten a face line that that, um, Mrs. Boynton delivers to Sarah King was actually delivered over her shoulder to... I feel like that could have been set up just a little bit better in making it more apparent of who was present for that conversation. Because the only hint we get before that's revealed later is that she overheard it. Yes. So one one little extra clue there I think would have been helpful yeah if if you are the type of person who really like wants to solve this mystery along with it i actually am well for some of these mysteries i like want to be right there with it and and solve it and want everything to be fair like i I don't know i'm kind of with colonel what's his face in this whole situation and like i just want poirot (laughs) to tell me what happened so i don't really mind the the reveal is fun i don't really mind that i didn't like get it before before yeah, the end I, of the story. I, I think if Poirot was there the whole way, I might have more <laughs> let it happen mm-hmm. rather than trying to like figure out like a who done it before before like he was on the scene. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like you know a lot of mysteries where once the person solving the mystery is there, like you kind of go along with the flow unless you've already already figured it out because mm-hmm. it, you know that's not really where you're trying to figure out the mystery. But since Poirot basically wasn't there for a half to two thirds of the book, I was kind of like, all right, well, is it this, is it this, is it this? And then when he starts doing the interviewing, I, I sort of went down that spiral. And it's like, I guess it's something that I either do with the book or I don't, which is like try and figure out the ending or what the twist is, or I just can like sit and enjoy the book as it goes. Mm-hmm. I'm fine with it. I really... As I expressed back at, with the uh, the closing chapters and then there were none, I love a good summary. I love a good wrap-up. I love a good, the reveal in terms of the character just, you know, waltzing through the situation, describing the plot. And man, does Poirot turn it into an art form when it comes for this and has a blast yeah. doing so. It It's a fun reveal. It's a fun cutting away of evidence to ultimately get to a conclusion. Because it really is a process mm-hmm. of exclusion by which he presents this. Yeah. And by the end, we are left with only so many possibilities and only so many facts of what were otherwise presented before us. So I and then buy there was it. One. Yeah, there was, <laughs> and she didn't. Uh, she didn't hang her little self, but she had a different way of resolving that problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that happens. The villain exit stage left, and we get an epilogue that feels unnecessary. Trite. <laughs> It's it's a better resolution than really like, like the wrap up pages of the play of where it's, everyone is suddenly fine rather than it being you know five years later everybody now is <laughs> fine. Jeez. Um, but I, I, I guess you you painted all of these characters for so long. The first half of the story was more built around them and their relationships rather than necessarily the ultimate mystery that's being resolved. Yeah. That right. I, I guess you need a resolution for them, and it it couldn't really happen then and be believable. See resolution of play. Yeah, so we sort of get 
uh, Sarah King, uh, and, uh, Raymond, Mm -hmm. uh, like on their honeymoon in London, watching a play with Ginny starring as Ophelia and Dr. Gerard saying like, didn't I do a really good job? And they're like, oh yes, we had so much fun. Bravo, bravo. Yes. Well done. (laughs) And all of the spares have kind of been paired yes. as well. Because Jefferson Cope is for some reason with Carol. Has which... finally, like, the scales have dropped from his eyes and it's not the it's not Nadine that he's after. He's seen for once in all of these years, the sister. Yeah, you, you finally stopped obsessing and moved on with your life and you promptly found somebody else to be happy with. Good well, for you. Well, I mean, it could also be, like, initially he was, like, 28 and she was, like, 17 and now it's five years later, so it's sure. generationally more acceptable. I mean, fine. <laughs> the, bear in mind, 1930s, they wouldn't have cared. <laughs> um, but, yeah, everybody's together. Everybody's happy. We get some last little Shakespearean quotes. And the story kind of wraps up because Poirot's even there, I know, which, too, which I actually fun. love yeah. that part. That makes me very happy. <laughs> and I'm here, too. He's checking in. <laughs> um, so would you say that Dr. Gerard was more of a mentor towards the end of this book and, and the pairing that he eventually gets with Ginny? I don't know necessarily what I'm supposed to get out of what is their relationship at the end of this story. I kind of like that it's not explicitly said they're together. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. It, it, it's fine. I mean, it's it's not the it's certainly not the best ending of the other two stories. The other it, it, the other two stories are marvelous. This one's just kind of bit trite and like a wrap up kind of ending. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This this functions. And you know, I think that it would have been. It, it, this is one of those kind of epilogues where you could totally just not read it, and the story is complete in and of itself. Yeah. If yeah. they just if they just ended on say like the, even the newspaper account is the epilogue mm-hmm. that could have been fun. Mm-hmm. It's just a way of wrapping up things there because um, that would almost remind me of a little bit of what was done with you know, uh, and then there were none. Yeah, yeah. But before I you know, before I say how the play changed things because this is the usually regarded as the single most rewritten story that she ever did compared uh, comparing the uh, book to the play. Mm-hmm. What were y'all's overall thoughts? Did you enjoy it? Was it flawed? What do you th- like- what do you think? A lot of the people on the internet, I actually really enjoyed how much of a tone change there was. Hmm. Um, it's sort of like in movies when there's like a very distinct color shift or something in hmm. in the the scenery You're in or a whatever. Wizard of Oz, else. <laughs> going from yeah, Kansas kind to Oz, of. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Where you know there there's the first part and then there's the Poirot part and they're distinctly different. You know. Our interactions with the characters change, uh, like the impressions that we get from the characters change, how they're described completely changes. Just it's it's a different story. And and I think that there is a decent service to be done with part one and part two. Um, and like I enjoyed reading both of them. Mm-hmm. They are related stories, but I mean, you could almost release them as separate books <laughs> and they're parts of a series or whatever, like in the same universe. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, the the worst part was the, the epilogue, which, you know, we can leave without. Um, but I, I get confused when people aren't engaged by these stories mm-hmm. um, because, you know, sometimes they're not the fastest read but it's short and a reasonably fast read so yeah it was fun i enjoyed it 
Sarah. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I I loved it. I don't. It did not. It, it, similar to you, BJ, like the the tonal shift does not bother me. I actually kind of like thinking about this as a weird sort of frame narrative story. Um, and it works. It works for me that way. Like these sort of bookends of Poirot, I'm fine with that. Even with this like strange beginning scene. Um, first of all, I love Poirot's psychology around how airs affect him. So I need that. I need more of that in my life. Um, but that is kind of the setup to like we're gonna get back to him at some point. I totally appreciate mm-hmm. and like. I do think that the mystery itself a little flawed, a little uneven in how it's presented and how like we're meant to be dealing with both evidence and motivations and things like that. Um, but you know, otherwise like the, these are characters that are so memorable. Um, and like the just epic, um, review we get from Poirot at the end. Like, I, I, I don't know. I really love this story. Yeah, I, it is near and dear to my heart. I've always, I've always quite liked it. Uh, I think it is flawed and messy, but it almost feels like it's one of the more personal of Agatha Christie's works, mm-hmm. based on her own history and just the own the amount of just willingness to just kind of wander that she does yeah. when she goes through mm-hmm. things. Yeah. It, um, I feel like Poirot's notes are kind of like maps in in a fantasy world, <laughs> where. Yeah. I it's love just, maps in fantasy world. <laughs> it's so nice to have like something like that put out, and a lot of the a lot of other books of hers and and stories like we we just don't get that you know here's concrete things that you can look at and like order like stuff in your head along with the author, and so to use a, a on point phrase, you're on the same page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a fun little touch. Now, um, just to bring them up, just because these are the major changes. Yep. This was one of the first. This was one of the first ones that she adapted to the stage. She did it only a couple years after Tim the Indians, mm-hmm. and it was rewritten incredibly. Offer an initial one. Hercule Poirot does not appear in this story in the play. <laughs> Doctor Gerard is the detective. Okay. He is both the psychologist and the detective, and solves the crime. And so, like you noted, BJ, he's always part of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, the biggest change, though, along with the condensing of the characters, is who the murderer is. The murderer is Mrs. Boynton, the matriarch, Mrs. Boynton. She commits an act of suicide and effectively sets up various events to frame her family, knowing that she's, you know, dying and the family's starting to find ways to break apart and get away from her, so that they will always be under a suspicion of each other and suspicion of the law and never fully escape her. So this is her last act of willful control. Yeah. That is interesting. Does it work? I like no because you know the Hercule Poirot figure is there. Sorry, to no, I just mean does it work it? like narratively? Does that like no, as you, for it, you as a viewer? Does it work? It works very well. Yeah, because uh, it in sounds terms like of the it would. Story. It, it's a fun focusing of characters mm-hmm. that I love the way this story plays out in terms of the novel. I love its little you know wanderings. I love its seemingly unnecessary characters that are thrown in there, and I find the resolution ultimately satisfying. But in some ways, the play is tighter just because it has a smaller cast, and those that we introduce to all prove relevant, with the mom staying, first and foremost, the main character of the story throughout. Yeah. Yeah. That is fun, and that's what it works. Ultimately, find this. there are some aspects of the play that come across as really kind of cringy or quick because the wanderings of the story are so important to it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and the resolution at the end of where suddenly Jenny's just kind of okay is just weird. <laughs> that doesn't. Um, mm, mm. She's totally like, like kind of snaps out of it, kind of thing. It's like okay, this we'll see if that sticks later. Hypnotism, like what? Are we... Yeah, it, it it just shows again that she had a hard time writing a way of resolving the story. Revol- yeah, of, just because of how effective everything else leading up to it is that it. To, for it to just stop thereafter just feels like a bit of a sudden just a train hitting a wall. Because, man, mm-hmm. is it just speeding along and then suddenly it's done. <laughs> so how, how to best describe that is hard. But I ultimately find the writing and the story and a lot of the way the characterizations works more interesting in the actual novel. But the character of Mrs. Boynton in the play and her role as being the murderer is a fascinating kind of change. Yeah, mm-hmm. that seems... I- while I can see how it would be like truncated in ways that maybe don't work as well in a play form, simply because this is such a complicated story, the psychological idea of what Mrs. Boynton is doing seems much just on the surface with you telling, sort of recounting yeah. this. It seems much more consistent with what's actually going on in the story. It's also, you don't notice if you're watching the play on first viewing, but it's remarkably fair because you do see her do it. Oh, you do see her. she never leaves the stage she's mm-hmm. always up in her cave just looming oh, down over oh, the audience that's throughout cool. all of that. yeah and so you or you just kind of write her off but in one moment her shadow just reaches up slowly and does something to her arm hmm. kind of thing mm-hmm. and you don't even notice it you don't even write it off it's just a little movement it's just a little shake why could that be anything that proves ultimately incredibly relevant to the story later after interesting interesting um, so I, I would encourage people to watch the play, even if I do find f- aspects of it just kind of frustrating. Sure. Yeah. Um, Spencer. Well, yes. When have you seen all of Agatha Christie's plays and read them? Because this seems to have been like a, a through line. Uh, there was a compilation of Agatha Christie that was done way back in, I think it was the 50s originally. No. When Spencer was born. <laughs> in many ways. It, it's, more, it's, it's more recent than that. But um, when we were in school, a new adaptation of it came out like the early 90s called The Mousetrap and Other Plays. Oh, yeah, I do okay. remember. I think I have that, a copy of that somewhere. There was a period there where in American education, every person about age nine got a copy of that for school. <laughs> and... I, we only had to read like one or two things in it. And mm-hmm. I, having a thousand page collection of Agatha Christie available, devoured that damn thing. <laughs> and that exposed me to a lot of plays, including An Appointment with Death. And then I just kind of wanted to see them afterwards because they were great. Sure. And so I saw The Mousetrap, saw Appointment with Death, saw a couple others. And yeah, I had a very different childhood as ways that people can easily <laughs> predict seeing me now. I, I just imagine you being like, 10 years old and your parents are like, all right, you know, we're trying to figure out plans for the weekend. Can we go see Agatha Christie? <laughs> what? It's a yeah. with that. Like it's at the local theater. They're putting on a, a version of it and they're like, oh, oh, okay. Bear in mind, this is a family I grew up in of where most evenings would be spent with several of us wrapped up in a blanket on the couch watching Turner classic movies together. So it wasn't that much of a shift. <laughs> Well, speaking of an appointment with death, my our movie night tonight is, in fact, Dial M for Murder. So we're going with a theme in the George Waterfield household. I like it. Well, we are sadly, at least for the short term, ending our run of mysteries. Yes. It, guys, it has been a lot of fun going through these mysteries with y'all. It's mm-hmm. fun to realize how much we all enjoy them. 
I think it's fair to say that we will find a way to return to them in probably the not-too-distant future. Yes. Yep. Uh, possibly with another series of hopefully more illustrious or at least agreeable awards. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> but in, in the meantime, we have a different plan of a bit of return to form. BJ, you noticed something when you were reading through the various aspects of the internet the other day. What other yes. series of awards just came um, out? So the Hugo Awards just came out. Um, and so I think we're going to do basically a similar thing that we did last year. Um, we'll have to make a decision on what we do with the nebulas, um, but we'll, I think there, there are five or six short stories that we'll uh, be going through and hopefully make this a uh, regular thing. And so that, that's uh, going to be exciting to do. Um, and then... Along with Mangum Reads and our redheaded stepchild pottering around, there's some other things on the uh, Mangum Talks podcast channel. I hear tell that we have a barnstormer uh, going on <laughs> with some, something going on. You know, I never would have expected this. Oh. Well, thanks to both uh, Lee's marketing and Sarah's wonderful both title and, you know, f uh, cover image for a new show. Uh, we've come out with the Never's More podcast, which is uh, celebrating and going through the celebrating, <laughs> celebrating the show The Never's that's just come out on HBO. We are two episodes in and we're having a blast talking about it. And it seems like we've started to put together a little bit of an audience when it comes to it. So we're going to be going through it week by week, taking a what is increasingly common mid-season break to then return to the show as it comes out later in the year. And we hope people are listening and enjoying with us. Um, that's great. And you, if you want to check that out, it's on mangumtalks.com. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us by clicking contact us in the upper right hand corner. We also have a Facebook feed, um, that all of our content goes on. And there's a Mangum Talks specific Facebook feed that also has, um, all of the podcasts and you can get all of that on Apple iTunes or Stitcher or I don't know, wherever the young people go for their audio entertainment um but as usual it's been fun y'all bye guys bye